Hi, and welcome to the Stefan Levera podcast focused on Bitcoin and Austrian economics. Today, I've got a fascinating interview with the brilliant Stefan Snidgerev, CTO of Crypto Advance. But first, let me introduce the podcast sponsors. So firstly, Kraken. They are one of the longest standing Bitcoin exchanges. They're consistently rated the best. They've got a really high quality platform offering the best liquidity in the industry. They also have a very strong focus on security, offering things like two-factor authentication, no phone or SMS account recovery, so your account stays in your hands. They've got PGP signed and encrypted email for secure communication if you wish. They've also got high priority 24-7 live chat and email support for urgent concerns. On the institutional and business solution side, they're very popular there too. With customers from funds and asset management to trading firms to crypto businesses, they offer the highest available API rate limits. There's also a Kraken OTC desk. Kraken offer five fiat currencies and they also offer margin and futures trading. So if you want to learn more and sign up, go to the Kraken link in the show notes. My second sponsor is Unchained Capital. So they're a Bitcoin financial services company and they've got two main products, one of which is a two of three keys multi-signature vault product. And this is really good because it can help you distribute your keys and help protect you against that proverbial $5 wrench attack. And you can still maintain control with your two keys and reduce that single point of failure risk. And this can work well for individuals or for institutions. I've set up a vault with Unchained. I found it super simple and easy. If you create an Unchained vault, you also get three free months of access to Safety and Immersive's Bitcoin Standard Research Bulletin. Unchained also offers Bitcoin collateralized loans, allowing you to get USD liquidity without selling your Bitcoins and not triggering a capital gains event. So this could be tax efficient for a hodler, enabling you to continue hodling rather than selling Bitcoins. So to learn more and sign up, go to the Unchained Capital link in the show notes. So this interview with Stepan Snijirev was recorded just prior to the Bitcoin 2019 conference in San Francisco. And it's a really interesting conversation because Stepan is able to credibly explain why the quantum computing threat to Bitcoin is overblown. And we also talk about some of the work that he's doing on hardware wallets. We talk about some of the challenges faced by hardware wallets today and the opportunities with hardware wallets going forward. And then we also talk a little bit about what he's doing with Crypto Advance. So with that said, on to the interview. Okay, we're live. Welcome to the show, Stepan. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so look, um, let's just start... Maybe just give yourself a bit of a, an intro just for the listeners. Well, so I uh, work uh, in the uh, Munich-based uh, company that uh, is trying to build a uh, hardware platform for Bitcoin. And before I used to be a quantum physicist, so like I spent my whole life in uh, experimental quantum physics, uh, doing quantum simulators, quantum computers and so on. Uh, and uh, last year I moved uh, to Bitcoin full-time because, well, it's so exciting. Uh, sometimes even <laughs> more exciting than quantum physics, yeah. Yeah, fantastic. So, look, I, I know um, that has been a common topic in Bitcoin. People have a bit of fear around this whole idea of, oh, no, quantum computing is going to come and is it going to destroy Bitcoin and so on. And I thought it might be good to obviously talk with you about that. And I know you recently uh, appeared on Peter McCormack's show as well, talking about some of these topics. Yeah. Um, so we'll see about if we sort of cover certain aspects in a little bit more detail, because obviously, you, you're, you know, we've got the expert in the room. <laughs> um, so I suppose, could you maybe just outline what is, what is the basic, s the so-called threat? 
Uh, okay, so what people are scared of uh, is mostly that the um, classical cryptography will be badly broken with quantum computers. Uh, and in theory, it is true, uh, because there are certain quantum algorithms that are much more efficient than classical ones. Uh, and uh, if we could have a, a general purpose quantum computer that is powerful enough to do this, uh, then yeah, all the uh, RSA, elliptic curve, uh, and other public key cryptography will be badly broken. Right. So let's break that down a little bit. So part of it is Bitcoin security is reliant on certain cryptographic assumptions, let's yeah. say. And some of that, there's different components of that. So one of them relates to mining. So that's double SHA-256. And the, the other kind of interesting one is around transactions. So that's... As I understand it, that's RIPE MD 160 and then a SHA 256 hashing. Uh, well, you're uh, talking about the hashing functions, but also another important assumption on uh, for security of Bitcoin is this uh, private and public key, uh, and so discrete lock assumption. So basically, if someone knows your public key, they shouldn't be able to uh, calculate your private key. Right. Uh, and uh, this is kind of the one that is. Uh, uh, very important for Bitcoin because uh, mining uh, and hashing, well, uh, we already have ASICs that are much faster than um, than classical normal uh, general purpose computers. And then if the quantum computers will appear, yeah, it will be a slightly uh, larger mining hashing power, uh, but uh, eventually it is not super crucial. So, yeah. Uh, the thing is with hashing mm, and with these elliptic curves, there are two different quantum algorithms. And uh, if you look at how efficient are quantum computers comparing to classical computers, it strongly depends on the algorithm that is used. So, for example, for uh, hashing for SHA-256, double SHA-256 or RMD or whatever hashing algorithm you use, uh, there is an algorithm, uh, Grover algorithm, that is uh, kind of more efficient than classical, but not super efficient. So if you are talking about the complexity, uh, normally with uh, hashing functions uh, to guess the, well, to mine the right block, you need to brute force. And uh, with quantum computer, you kind of parallelize this brute force using this entanglement stuff, and it becomes a little bit faster. But basically, instead of 2 to the 256, you will need to have the mm, number of calculations that is 2 to square root of uh, 256. So it is an improvement, but it's not like uh, badly broken hashing function. So it's just a bit faster. Yeah, so uh, if just to make sure I've got my understanding correct, and also just for the listeners, what you're saying there is part of Bitcoin's security relies on there being this enormous search space and the yes. fact that people must brute force, like literally just hunt, like kind of uh, trying to pick the needle out of a haystack, right? The equivalent yeah. of that. And what you're saying there is using, is it Grover's algorithm, we are able to theoretically reduce the size or like kind of search more efficiently rather yes. than literally needle in a haystack searching. But essentially, if I were to simplify what you're saying is you while you can reduce that, it's just not to the level that somebody could, given your public key, figure out what is your private key, which would then enable them to spend your Bitcoins. Well, these are different problems. So uh, the hashing is determining this mining power and proof of work. Yeah. So with quantum computers, it will be more efficient. So probably all the mining pools will be replaced by the labs running quantum computers. Right. And then quantum computers will compete with each other. Right. Uh, but uh, still, it's fine. Uh, the other problem is mm, 
this uh, public-private key uh, problem. So, and in here we have a quantum algorithm that is very efficient. So basically, if we have a reasonably large quantum computer and you give me your public key, uh, I can calculate your private key. Uh, well very fast basically so it's uh, like uh, all the assumptions that uh, public cryptography relying on doesn't work anymore uh, the problem is how easy how hard it is to achieve and to build this machine and yeah so i think that uh, the people overestimate the threat because damn it's so freaking hard uh, i mean <laughs> you build a lab for five years uh, then hopefully it works uh, then you have some bright idea how to improve this quantum computer a little bit uh, uh, but still we are orders 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 of magnitude uh, below what we really need for that right and so can you give us a sense of like where what are the what are the numbers that we're talking about here and like if it was even possible, how, how long would it, you know, would yeah. it be? If there's, if you even have an idea of, is it we just we don't even know. Uh, yeah. So uh, right now, uh, the current kind of modern labs uh, operate with quantum computers that have around uh, 100 qubits, and can uh, make around uh, thousand, ten thousand gates. So gate is basically an operation on the qubits, similar to C not on uh, normal bits. So this is where we are and we need to go to tens of thousands qubits and millions of gates and we also need to reduce noise a lot such that while we are operating this quantum computer this uh, very complicated and entangled state does uh, is not destroyed uh, so i would say that uh, even if we uh, consider the moore's law that uh, doesn't work on semiconductor industry anymore and we assume that number of qubits will increase every couple years uh, then still we have at least a decade i would say more realistically three four decades before uh, the quantum computer will be built that can uh, break uh, classical cryptography so because well yeah there are breakthroughs that are happening every five years or so uh, but uh, still the field is very very in, in the early stages Plus, uh, another thing, we will actually see how quantum computers arises because there will be other applications uh, that do not uh, require this uh, crazy amount of qubits. So we will see already a boost in artificial intelligence from Google and maybe some advances in uh, superconducting um, field and uh, material sciences and so on. So we will see that quantum computers arises and become useful uh, way earlier than they will be able to break classical computers. Right. So you're saying in some sense we'll have warning signs. There'll be a canary in the coal mine before... Yes the Bitcoin people would have to be worried at all because there'll be other things that break first. Uh, well, not like break first, but uh, actually there will be other things where quantum computers can be uh, very useful for our society. So we will see these uh, developments and uh, then we should uh, at this point probably start worrying. Uh, but I still think that uh, post-quantum cryptography needs to be developed because developing new cryptography is also very challenging. Uh, and this is uh, probably what we should also talk about. Like uh, mm, Post-quantum crypto uh, is showing a lot of uh, progress recently, uh, but the problem is that still it is not ready for uh, prod kind of production use. So it's still uh, more like a research. And if you try to use post-quantum crypto now, then you will be probably much more vulnerable uh, to normal classical attackers. Right. And so the problem, I guess the challenge that you're saying there is that 
if somebody wants to make a quantum resistant crypto coin and so on, the challenge then is that that coin may not be resistant against normal classical computer yes, computation. Yes, exactly. uh, so there was a competition, I think, by NIST. Uh, they uh, tried to, well, they called for post-quantum algorithms. Uh, and I think that uh, like 95, 99% of them were broken with normal classical computers. So just because developing new cryptography is extremely hard and yeah we should work in this direction but we should not put real money on uh quantum uh, altcoins <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because that's the thing as well right there's a, there's a few people who who try to drum up some fear right because drumming up fear is a good way to sell things obviously and then they come out and they say oh bitcoin's gonna fail because of this quantum problem and now here is my quantum shitcoin yeah and i uh, i think that Better to, if you want to put money in post-quantum crypto, better to support some real academic research. Uh, and uh, with these uh, altcoins, uh, I wouldn't consider them seriously uh, unless they have uh, an algorithm that is not broken for at least, uh, I don't know, 5-10 years. Uh, and that is also has efficient algorithms on classical computers such that uh, it is not vulnerable to side channels and all other attacks. Because uh, even if you have a very good theoretical algorithm, uh, implementation is extremely hard. Uh, I mean, uh, do we need then, uh, if you want to use a post-quantum altcoin, do we need to put our private keys on the computer then? Because probably hardware wallets, for example, are not capable of running that because it's uh, way too complicated. Plus, all the side channels and uh, other kinds of attacks that are uh, pretty common even for existing classical uh, cryptographic algorithms. Uh, do they take this into account? I, I doubt that. Yeah, so uh, I wouldn't uh, put money on um, post-quantum altcoins. Right. <laughs> and um, another thing I was keen to ask you about around this whole idea of quantum is if there were to be these quantum computers out there and I, I think part of it is you were touching on this earlier that we would know from other things there would be breakthroughs in other advances of science um, but hypothetically if somebody had this sort of computer and they were able to you know figure out your private key from your public key we would have to change our whole model right because in the past people have spoken about this idea of oh if you don't what's the word if you don't kind of send your public key out then that's a way to kind yeah. of help protect you know, as though that would be a protection against quantum computers or s at least some level of protection yeah, so a, a few things here. So first, yeah, we uh, have in the address not the, just our public key, but the hash of the public key. Uh, and uh, people think that it is a good protection or some kind of protection against quantum computers. But uh, the problem is that when you need to broadcast the transaction, you put the, the signature and the public key. So you are telling to, the, to uh, the whole world what is your public key. And if there is a quantum computer that is efficient enough, uh, then this would be enough to mm, calculate your private key and maybe replace the transaction with a larger fee or do some double spending, especially if it is a miner. And if there is a quantum computer doing this, they are probably the miners because... Uh, they would have the incentive. Yeah, you have... Uh, additional mining power there. So what they can do, they can see your transaction with the public key, you tell it to the miner, they uh, calculate the private key and spend all the money to them instead of um, instead of what you wanted. And right. uh, they take all the money, they mine the block, uh, and um, yeah, so the whole uh, blockchain will be screwed. So, and this hashing uh, part doesn't help. And 
I think this is the reason why in Schnorr signatures we are not getting this uh, pay to pub key hash, we are uh, paying to the public key. Because uh, this kind of protection against quantum computer doesn't really work, but it messes up a few applications. For example, uh, this, uh, well, com the taproot and combining with uh, additional scripts. Uh, so it becomes hard with uh, hashing. And so we would better just use a public key and it's fine. Right. And I suppose just to maybe replay some of that, just to make sure some of the listeners can follow along. What you're saying, the theoretical attack in this quantum, if, if say somebody's got a quantum computer and let's say, you know, Stepan, you put out a, you want to pay somebody with a Bitcoin transaction, they would read that transaction and they would see it as you broadcast a transaction, but before it's been confirmed into a block, they would then use the quantum computer, so to speak, and try to, you know, reverse out the private key and craft their own transaction, spending, say, those Bitcoins to their own wallet and... If they're a miner, then they can obviously have uh, give it give their own transaction preference to come into a block, or they could alternatively give a really high mining fee, more than what you gave, to try and help their transaction be the one that gets mined into the block, and yes, then therefore yes, kind of that's the theoretical attack. But obviously, mm -hmm. as you've outlined, there's a f many reasons why that's not a very <laughs> realistic thing to think of as any kind of fear right now. Uh, and then the other point I think you were touching on was around essentially there are different utxo types and you know in, in the the old days in the first few bitcoin transactions i think they really were pay to public uh, hash uh, and then over time the hash, yeah. so just yeah. pay to public key there yes were, sorry uh, yeah i think uh, some of the satoshis uh, bitcoins are uh, on the addresses that are just pay to public key yeah. yes exactly and then what happened is over time we had different utxo types so we had you know pay to script hash and we've got pay to public key hash which is the one you mentioned there and then some of the segwit ones which were i think it's pay, pay to, to witness, witness public, public key hash, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. right and so then essentially what we're getting at there is that moving to this new schnorr proposal it's it's sort of going to be a mo uh, it's going to be going back to the kind of pay to public key model yeah but it will be uh pay to not just a public key but a kind of smart public key right that also includes uh, any kind of uh, multi-signature policies there and also the scripts um, so it is a pretty powerful update i would say yeah in terms of the new functionality yes. that's um, going to be enabled all right um i think that they're, they're most of the key things around kind of the quantum uh, computer aspect, but I'm also interested to talk with you about what you're working on with, you know, hardware wallets and mm -hmm. crypto advance. So, look, I think let's set some of the context a little bit and talk about some of the challenges that, as we record this today in June 2019, what are some of the issues that hardware wallets today are facing? So there are a few things. I think that, well, hardware wallets are great and some of them are uh, amazing. So, you know, one short ad, Trezor uh, guys, I really like them. Uh, and they're doing a lot. Code card also very nice and uh, Ledger have very, uh, very good hardware. Uh, but mm, as this uh, field was developed, uh, well, all these projects started uh, in a way that, okay, we just want to keep our private keys safe. 
and we don't care about any complicated scripts. We just want our simple pay to public PubQ hash uh, functionality. And so uh, it kind of stayed this way for, for years. And now maximum that we can get from hardware wallets is normally uh, paying to uh, normal addresses using either normal um, normal scripts like pay to PubQ hash or maximum multi signature, nothing else. But in reality, the uh, scripting language is pretty powerful and now we have new applications that are used very often. For example, the coin join transactions uh, become pretty um, important because no one want to wants to expose how much money they actually own. Lightning network is really, uh, really rising and uh, becoming more powerful and like, all the layer two solutions, basically. And they rely not on a simple script, but uh, on some complicated approaches. So in case of CoinJoin, uh, you don't have just your own inputs in the transaction. You also have a bunch of uh, external inputs from other parties. Uh, on Lightning, you also have all these uh, time locks and uh, CSV, well, so on. Uh, CSV, HTLCs, and other things. And uh, also, what is very controversial for hardware wallets and unusual for hardware wallets, uh, in Lightning, you actually need to give out the secrets to the other party whenever you update the channel state. So it's like uh, what from the hardware wallet perspective looks terrible. Like y you are actually sending out the private key out of there. Yeah. Mm, yeah. So sorry. Let's just um, break it down a little bit. So just for uh, the listeners who are not as um, uh, knowledgeable, Bitcoin. Think of it like when you have a, a a piece of a Bitcoin, a UTXO, an unspent transaction output. There are certain encumbrances placed upon that UTXO, and the way that you may spend that UTXO is by satisfying the script, the locking script. And so mm -hmm. what you're getting at, Stepan, is that there are you know, more advanced versions or advanced technologies that we're coming out with now that allow things like different, uh, more, you know, different trees of uh, spending. So an example might be uh, you can either do a two of three multi-signature spend or... Uh, but that results in some kind of time delayed, mm -hmm. you know, Bitcoin transaction, or you can have maybe a three of three and it's automatically available now. Yeah, so some of these exactly. more advanced scripting options. And I guess what you're getting at there is that our the, the hardware wallets that are commonly available right now don't necessarily help the user do some of these more advanced functions. Yeah, so unfortunately at the moment, I if you use a hardware wallet, you have to stick with the security model that the uh, manufacturers and designers of the hardware wallet decided is good. Uh, and uh, you know, the Bitcoin community uh, varies a lot. So some people are extremely paranoid and go really crazy with their private key management systems. And others are uh, kind of more like normies and they are fine with having a simple hardware wallet or even maybe storing the private key on their phone. Uh, so mm, the problem is on this cypherpunk uh, paranoid uh, range of people. And actually these are the people that also hodlers and hodlers of maybe large amounts, like maybe they are early adapters and they have the amount and they become actually already uh, scared of uh, storing it on just a hardware wallet. So they want something else and they need to build it by, by themselves because there are no tools available for doing it easily. Yeah, and that is uh, basically what we are trying to solve. Uh, we don't want to fix, uh, to kind of force people to use a particular security model. We want them to uh, 
make it according to their security. Uh, so, uh, for example, provide a convenient toolbox that would allow people that are not super sophisticated in embedded development still develop something uh, nice for themselves. Uh, also to make the applets or, or like apps for our hardware wallet to enable certain features. For example, we don't uh, think that we can support all types of mm, applications that will be there in Bitcoin. We are planning to support CoinJoin uh, Lightning, but maybe there will be something else new, for example, state chains that recently appeared and other things. And uh, would be nice to allow developers of these technologies to kind of extend the functionality of the hardware to support that. Yeah. So that's why we decided to kind of name the project not a hardware wallet, but more like a hardware platform. Right, okay. And I think, let's let's talk a little bit, I'd, I'd, I want to hit some of those um, common functions or pieces that go into making a good hardware wallet so, so right now a lot of people talk about you know the secure element right so and and then there have been many attacks against hardware wallets and people talk about okay but have a passphrase and so on can mm -hmm. you just outline some of the maybe some of the attacks that we've seen the successful attacks against hardware wallets over the last year or so um, yeah, sure. So I think that recently when uh, I did this research, I counted like 16 hacks over half a year. So like not the hacks in the wild, but more like the vulnerabilities that were reported. And uh, it's pretty crazy. So it basically shows that uh, even if you have awesome hardware, even if you have awesome software, uh, probably there, there is still a way to hack your hardware wallet. So nothing is perfectly secure. And uh, you just need to uh, keep it in mind and actually be aware of the ways how exactly it can be hacked. Uh, so yeah, there are currently like uh, two approaches. So what Trezor does, for example, they are completely open source. Uh, and uh, they are extremely good at developing the firmware and uh, actually the protocol. Uh, but mm, because of these uh, ideological reasons, they, as they want to stay open source uh, all the way, uh, they have to work with uh, normal application microcontrollers. And it is a bit problematic because these microcontrollers were not designed for security. So uh, they are designed to be put in the, uh, I don't know, microwave or maybe your car uh, or in the, well, in all kinds of devices, but not on the mm, security things. Uh, and uh, because of that, uh, it is pretty vulnerable to hardware attacks. So basically this means that if uh, uh, you have your treasure in the hands of the attacker, then probably there is a way to hack it, even though we may not know it the way right now. And that is why they introduced the passwords, and I think it is a very good mechanism for application microcontrollers. So uh, you don't store your full uh, mnemonic there. You have kind of your uh, mnemonic plus you have a password that you enter every time when you need to access the device. Yeah. So let me just explain that just for the listeners as well. So typically on the Trezor, you might when you set that up, you might have a 24-word seed, and you may also have a pin on the Trezor. But then in addition to that. There's another, if you go in the advanced section, there's a passphrase section. And that think of that like the 25th word, if you will. And so while the uh, automatically generated 24-word seed comes from a set dictionary, the 25th word or the passphrase that you write is just your own choice, right? And now my understanding from some of these wallet attacks is that typically one of the responses is, well, you should use a passphrase. Mm -hmm. And now there are various... Um, 
there's potentially some problems with that as well because the problem then is the user now has to remember a very long passphrase to kind of make the security kind of yeah, equivalent. Then, and then they it just might, can't do that. might be easier to remember a 12 or 24 word seed and then every time when you need to make the transaction, you just uh, initialize your device and then after transaction, you just wipe it. Right. Uh, so this is, I think, that some people actually do. Uh, well, the passphrase is... Okay, because there, well, you need you can choose whatever you want. The problem is that users normally pick weak passwords. So, like the um, statistics, yeah, random statistics shows that uh, the entropy of the passwords is about uh, 11 bits only. So it is still uh, crackable with um, uh, dictionary uh, attacks, attacks and. Uh, maybe even brute force if the uh, password is not long enough. Uh, so for me, for example, I just remember the whole, the whole seat. Uh, and uh, I also don't use uh, existing hardware wallets though, so <laughs> I am <c> <laughs> kind of not a, a normal person in that sense. Um, right. Yeah, so uh, with this uh, microcontrollers that are based on application, uh, uh, sorry, hardware wallets that are based on application microcontrollers, uh, passphrase uh, actually makes a lot of sense. Uh, then we have uh, hardware wallets like Ledger that have a secure element. Uh, and uh, basically these secure elements are industrial standard for uh, security chips. So they're extremely good, they are very well designed, they have a lot of countermeasures against all these hardware attacks. Uh, and in that sense, you don't really need the passwords uh, for Ledger, for example. So just having a pin uh, is enough because uh, if you actually uh, enter wrong pin three times, or I don't know how many times, uh, then it just wipes the device, right? Yeah. Uh, so the problem though is that uh, even if your hardware w is uh, very good and perfectly secure against hardware attacks, uh, if your protocol sucks, then you have problems. So if you introduce the bugs on the software, uh, then it can be problematic. And this is what we uh, saw on the attacks on Ledger. Uh, so uh, there was one with this not verifying the change address uh, recently, and then there are hacks that Ledger thinks is not a hack uh, with the food babe thing, the uh, taking control of the uh, firmware that is running on the uh, microcontroller that drives the display. Uh, so there are still ways to hack even uh, the unhackable hardware, just using software, like using maybe even a remote attacks. Uh, so just don't think that if you're using Ledger or Trezor or some something else, uh, you are perfectly secure. You still need to uh, consider how to make it better. For example, maybe using the multi-signature is a good idea because uh, it is much harder to hack multiple devices than find the hack for one of them. Right, and this is where, say, companies like Casa or Unchained, where they're offering this kind of thing, or you can do like a roll-your-own solution as well. And, uh, you know, typically a good piece of advice that you might hear from some Bitcoiners on this is that you might you want to have multiple locations and you might want to try and vary your use of the different devices. Maybe you would use one Trezor and one Ledger and, you know, something else in your one cold card in your mix uh, of multi-signature to try yes. and give yourself so a bit more of a chance. Ideally, you want to combine uh, products from different vendors because they have different uh, teams uh, and different bugs, hopefully, that will be probably not uh, d discovered not at the same time. So uh, if you keep them up to date and if you use the products from different vendors, then you're fine. Um, 
So there are still questions about um, the support of multi-signature. Uh, for example, Coldcard is releasing uh, support of multi-signature pretty soon, and uh, that's great. Uh, then we will have something to pair with Trezor. Uh, Trezor supports multi-signature very nicely from the very beginning, and the user flow is wonderful. Uh, Ledger uh, kind of supports multi-signature. It has some problems, though, but uh, kind of okay-ish. Uh, yeah, but uh, it would be nice to see more hardware wallets that support uh, multi-signature as well. Yeah, and hopefully we will be one of them. Yeah, excellent. So uh, I think one other thing is that depending on the manufacturer of that wallet, they may have different level a different level of time and focus on Bitcoin. So for example, you know, Trezor and Ledger, I know that they have had to spend engineering time on other coins. And yeah, I think true. there's a bit of a tension there because, you know, the Bitcoiners, like the kind of hardcore Bitcoiners, they just want a Bitcoin-only firmware. And I know that, um, um, I, to my knowledge, I think the Trezor team are working on a Bitcoin-only version as well. Yeah, they're considering it seriously. So they, uh, by talking to Trezor, I uh, found out that basically they are very Bitcoiners, so they uh, don't care about altcoins. Uh, so altcoins... They added support for altcoins when there were hard times and when it was profitable, and now it's just uh, very hard to drop them because, well, people will be mad at them, right? Uh, but I think that actually having Bitcoin-only option of the firmware is a pretty good choice. Uh, they are also working a lot on um, different additions uh, to the security and to the protocol. For example, they are adding the SD card, so hopefully they will also have a complete air-gapped mode. Uh, plus, they are using this SD card for other reasons, like uh, adding some extra entropy or uh, backing up. Uh, they are also working on Shamir secret sharing scheme for your seed. That is also great because right now, actually, the uh, weakest point in the security of the hardware wallets is your paper backup. Because where do you store it? And it is like in the plain text. Either it is crypto still or whatever, so it's just a plain text. Uh, and in one place. So this is the weakest point. And if we could have a Shamir Secret Sharing support, uh, that would help a lot because yeah, then you to set it to three or five or whatever and then spread it across uh, your trusted uh, friends and family. Right. Uh, now, I recall, um, I think this was Andy Andrew Polstra on Marty Ben's recent podcast is talking about how maybe there's a certain way to apply it and do this, but my understanding from what he was saying is that it's actually not very... People should be careful about using Shamir's because it might be more easily broken compared to using multi-signature because, say, it's you know two or three pieces of one signature. Does, does that is there a big difference there from the security point of view for the user? Like multi-signature mm. versus Shamir's, basically. Oh, well, so... Uh, as far as I understand, uh, the difference is uh, that in Shamir you have a single key that you split and then uh, whenever you need to sign with a normal ECDSA that we have right now, before Schnorr, right? Mm. Uh, you need to recombine it every time. So basically for every transaction, uh, you still have a single point where your uh, full key uh, exists. And this is the problem. Uh, with Schnorr, it will be easier because there you can split the key into multiple uh, pieces and then you can combine uh, pieces uh, kind of parts of the signature into a single one so uh, still uh, this means that during the splitting 
at the first moment at the setup phase you will have a full uh, key somewhere but um, well yeah there are obviously trade-offs but on the other hand if you have a multi-signature then you also need to back up multiple keys right mm -hmm. there are always trade-offs you just need to see what fits better to your security model right yeah sure okay look so let's talk a little bit about your product i know you know you've got a few different ideas that you're working on do you want to just go into that yeah so uh, the first what eventually we want uh, at the end that will take some time, but uh, still is to make a convenient uh, consumer hardware wallet like for uh, normal people maybe using the security model that we believe is fine, but it is easy to use. You just buy the device and use it as uh, it's normal. Uh, plus, you have some uh, extra functionality like CoinJoin, Lightning Network, complete air gaps uh, with uh, QR code scanner. Uh, so I think that uh, basically everything that we can uh, do to make the user experience uh, easier and still supports uh, modern Bitcoin development. Mm. Uh, also, we want to allow people to write the uh, MicroPython scripts for uh, one of our microcontrollers in the hardware. So basically you will be able to uh, put the, the apps from external developers there, uh, but uh, without really compromising security. So what these apps can do, they can provide additional metadata to the transaction. So for example, uh, let's say you uh, want to do the coin join uh, and uh, by default, the hardware wallet will show you just the full transaction that, okay, there are these 50 inputs, 50 outputs. Uh, I don't know how much you are spending. Uh, it just uh, looks like a mess. Uh, so what this app can do, it can highlight certain inputs and outputs that, okay, these are your inputs and these are your outputs and this is what you are actually spending there. So just uh, to uh, make the um, user experience a little bit uh, easier without accessing secrets, really. Right. Yeah. And I th I un as I understand it, it'll have like a touch screen. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, I think the problem right now is that uh, the screens are too tiny on the hardware wallet. So what we have, we have a screen from, uh, well, basically similar to what iPhone 4 has. I think that it is exactly the model that they had. Uh, so mm, it's enough to display your master public key, to display the signed transaction for the air gap modes. Uh, it also has a camera to scan uh, unsigned transaction uh, or anything else. Uh, so, um, and you can fit a lot of data there. And well, you can actually have the experience that people normally have with the smartphones, right? So you just scroll, navigate, and uh, do things like that. So this is from the um, user experience perspective. Yeah. Uh, another thing that we are doing before we uh, release this product is uh, actually we, are, we will release the developer board and the secure element. Uh, so that's our hope for the autumn, uh, that we can uh, give the developers' ability to make their own hardware, uh, not only wallets, but any kind of Bitcoin-powered devices. Uh, so yeah, we, we are releasing the developer board and the uh, secure element from Infineon with our applet that uh, allows to do all the Bitcoin-related stuff, like mm, key derivations, uh, signing transactions with ECDSA, with Schnorr, uh, hopefully Shamir Secret Sharing will be there, and um, Oh no, Shamir Secret Sharing, you don't really need to put there. Well, we'll see. So we are defining the API right now, but hopefully it will be a tool that you can just put into your uh, developer board or your device and start using it. And that would provide all the 
convenient stuff uh, that Bitcoiners and Bitcoin developers actually need. Because you know there is a smart card from Infineon uh, that is mm, that they try to market as a uh, blockchain uh, starter kit or something, uh, but it is completely useless. I mean, they don't have the uh, key derivation uh, schemes there, so you can use only one key or maybe 500 different keys. Uh, you don't have some advanced uh, signing features. You, well, you, you don't have many things that you really need. Um, so we hope that we can uh, uh, make something useful for developers here. Uh, and uh, also it will help uh, to build the enterprise solution that we are also targeting. So like companies that need to store the private keys in a very uh, unique way and integrate the hardware to their mm, to their security kind of mechanisms. Right. So essentially you'll have an individual hardware wallet and some enterprise hardware wallet solutions that you're going and to look at. And also developer uh, toolbox for tinkers. Yep. Yeah. And uh, let's talk a little bit about the air-gapped uh, mm -hmm. idea that you're using because it's a, it's a slightly different model to, say, the cold card air-gapped air model. Can you just outline a little bit of how that would work with your proposal? So I think that there are actually some uh, hardware wallets that use something similar. Mm. So we are not the first ones who are suggesting it, uh, but the idea is very simple. So you um, have your uh, hardware wallet completely disconnected from the computer and you never connect it. Uh, so you have your watch-only uh, software wallet on your computer or your phone. Uh, whenever you need to make a transaction, you just uh, prepare the transaction, display the PSBT as a QR code that you scan with the hardware wallet. Hardware wallet displays then all the information for you to verify and to confirm. Uh, and you scan back the signed transaction that you can broadcast. So basically it just uh, works as a flip, flip, and you're done. Yeah. Mm, so you don't need to enter the SD card into the slot and uh, then find the laptop that supports SD card. Uh, so I think it is already pretty challenging at the moment. Right. But yeah. Let's let's break that down. Actually, I think that's probably a little bit complicated. So just for some of the listeners who might not be familiar with um, some of those terms, let's just say the private key lives on the hardware wallet. Yes. But the challenge is you do not want that private key to get exposed onto a com an internet-connected com computer. And so one way that you're proposing to do that is to, say, have a watching-only wallet, let's say, on your phone, for example. And that, that's like, for example, where you put an XPUB onto that phone. But so the phone can know the balance but not spend. Yeah, right. so uh, it uh, watches the blockchain, uh, it uh, sees the incoming transaction, it can prepare the information for the hardware wallet to sign stuff. So like, uh, it can say that, uh, okay, these are the addresses, these are the amounts, this is uh, how to derive the key that you know, but I have no idea uh, what about the that, what is. the private key is. Yeah, so this is some information that you may find useful to sign stuff and uh, also to display to the users like uh, what is the change address uh, why it is a change address so then hardware wallet itself can use only this data without uh, knowing anything about the blockchain to actually display everything properly and sign right and so what you what you're getting at there is that the let's say my phone that it has the watching only wallet and it's got the XPUB in there and it's watching the balances and I can use that to craft a transaction, an unsigned transaction. And then it, what it can do is create a QR code that essentially contains that information saying, oh, Stefan, pay, you know, if you, you know, do you want to sign this transaction? 
um, and it's going to pay to this address, you know, and this amount, y- yeah. Yeah, showing you this amount. And essentially, then the hardware wallet has the camera, which I would then kind of hold over my phone to read, to scan in that QR code and take kind of ingest that transaction through like a barcode scanner or a QR code scanner. And then on the hardware wallet, because it's got like a proper screen, now it's got a bit of a, it can show you, okay, do you want to pay X, Y, and Z number of Bitcoins to this address? Uh, And it can kind of show you that. And then what you would do from the hardware wallet is hit, you know, yes, sign that transaction. I want to do it. And that will use the private key to sign that transaction. And then again, you've got to transfer it back to the phone to broadcast that. So can you outline that yeah, as well? Yeah, and uh, having a large screen actually matters here because you can actually uh, display the QR code with a signed transaction after that. So after you signed, you just uh, show as a QR code the full transaction that you can scan with your, with your phone and then broadcast. Yeah, Fantastic. So yeah, that's a very different... Um, model and i think um, that could also be another you know way that people can help keep themselves a little bit more secure yeah so i think the other another big one is lightning so i think most people and uh, most people would think hang on you can't do lightning hardware wallet like don't you need to sign the for whenever somebody is routing through your channel how, how would it work? So can you outline a little bit there? Well, first, uh, people will probably think that why do you need a hardware wallet for Lightning anyways? Because there are small amounts, so I have, I'm fine having 100 euros or dollars uh, on my phone uh, on the basically uh, maybe not so secure computer because it's not a big deal even if I lose it. But it is only like one side of the ecosystem, right? Because we also have people that are... Uh, liquidity providers to the network that uh, basically route all these payments and also we have merchants that are accepting the payments and for example there are channels between I think Bitrefuel and Async uh, of one Bitcoin or even more so and this already matters I mean that I definitely don't want to lose to store even one Bitcoin on on the online server that is pointing the, that has a public IP address and um, I'm, for example, not capable of uh, maintaining the infrastructure securely enough on the servers. Uh, so, yeah, to do the Lightning hardware wallet, uh, it is a little bit tricky because you need to be connected to the online computer. So uh, our approach is that uh, you have, a, let's say, watch-only uh, Lightning node uh, in the cloud or on your computer that can do uh, all the heavy uh, heavy stuff like uh, networking, uh, gossiping, uh, getting the routing information and all other stuff that is not touching the secrets. And then all the secrets live on the hardware wallet, but here the trade-off is that you do need to uh, keep the hardware wallet connected to the computer because every time when uh, you are routing the payment uh, on the network, mm, you need to send this uh, pair of transactions to the hardware wallet. Hardware wallet needs to verify that uh, it is actually uh, the amount of money of the user increases, so we are earning some fees here, or at least stays the same, and then it can automatically sign. So this is another thing that uh, we talked before, like automatic functionality of the hardware wallets. It becomes uh, more than just uh, press to confirm things. It uh, has to be uh, more like... um, uh, moving into the direction of like uh, banking HSMs and commercial HSMs, uh, so m- smarter things. 
so yeah, that's uh, what we are also working on. So two edge cases. Uh, either you are completely air-gapped and never connect the computer to, uh, to the hardware wallet, or you kind of have a warm hardware wallet that still have a bi-directional communication with the computer, uh, but uh, still the security, uh, the attack surface is uh, very small in this case because uh, the hardware wallet uh, runs very small amount of code and uh, secure hardware. Right, and so you you see it like, you know, the business might have multiple different, you know, wallets, obviously. They would, I mean, that's how most Bitcoin businesses today operate, right? They've got a kind of deep cold storage and then they might have like a somewhat cold storage and then like the hot wallet. And so in what you're envisioning there is that maybe that hot wallet would be this lightning hardware wallet. Yeah, yeah. So you have a normal computer that uh, runs all the uh, kind of watch-only functionality and then next to it in the same server rack you have this hardware wallet that uh, works as a, a hardware security module to uh, sign the transaction automatically do all the stuff. Uh, so, and in this case, uh, for enterprises, for example, you don't even need a screen, actually. Uh, so, you, well, you need to set it up to according to a certain policies, uh, and then you just plug it in and it just works. Yeah, so there's a lot to come for that, because the, a lot of these ideas are things where, you know, for example, if you want to coin join, you pretty much, you've got to use Wasabi, Samurai, or Join Market. There's not really kind of other options right and then it's kind of like if you want to do coin joins well now you can't do lightning because it's like none of the lightning wallets have you know coin join uh, and the coin well join wallets have lightning at, it's at the moment you can't even do it because uh, coin join uh wants all the inputs and outputs to look the same and lightning uses the uh, two of two multi-signature uh, scheme so it's not like a normal output so you will be uh, easily visible in the uh, in the coin join transaction but you can uh, Hopefully, in principle, you can do something like uh, coin join for lightning uh, channels uh, where all the participants are actually opening the lightning channels and then they are again uh, look the same. Uh, but uh, yeah, the problem right now is that we are in a pretty early stage of development of these things, both lightning and uh, coin join. And uh, it's more like proof of concept. So we have software that works, uh, but we don't have like a common API. And uh, for example, for the coin join, I can't just um, write a software wallet to connect to uh, Wasabi coin join server because, uh, well, I don't know where to find the documentation. As far as I know, it is not very well documented at the moment. Uh, so I think that it would be nice to develop a certain standards on the on this kind of split all the pieces uh, to different parts. So we already have a pretty good uh, isolation of the hardware wallets. We have this HWI interface from Bitcoin Core that allows you to uh, talk only to this module and then it translates to all the hardware wallets. Uh, would be nice to have the same for software wallets and for the servers. So such that I could uh, connect to any coin join server, for example, and register my transaction there. Yeah, so I think it's some of this is like uh, even with PSBT, right? So PSBT is more of a recent thing. In the past, there were individual companies or software solutions who did something similar, but now it's kind of trying to find a way that people can standardize and then multiple multiple coin join type wallets might kind of share the coin joining liquidity if that makes sense. Because otherwise right now Wasabi's got their own pools, Samurai has their own pool. Like obviously they, they're running they're running in different ways, but potentially in the future there is a possibility there that if there's a standard for this kind of thing, then 
you could be using different wallets, but still in part of the same coin join pool, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think that would be great. Uh, yeah, there are problems with like humans as usual. Uh, so like there is always some policy, uh, politics, and uh, kind of personal relationships between developers of different wallets that uh, may uh, kind of limit this communication and uh, development of common API. But uh, I definitely want to live in the world where everything uh, well all different software, well, not all, but many different software, hardware, and uh, servers uh, work together in a common way. Yeah, so that would be awesome. Right. And I think you also you were also just touching on a couple of really interesting ideas before about if we were to start doing things like, okay, an example would be you're doing a transaction and then the change could be opening a lightning channel things like that because obviously over time like if we're both we're all bullish on bitcoin and we think more people are going to use it blockchain is going to get more and more used and we need to be very efficient in our use and so i think you had a few interesting ideas do you want to touch on some of those on what what could be done in the future about more efficient use well, yeah, so the first uh, huge improvement, as I said, and that I am very excited about is Schnorr signatures, right? So when everything will look the same on the blockchain. So everything looks like a spending to a single public key. Uh, so that is already very, very nice for privacy and for uh, the use of the space of the blockchain as well. Uh, then uh, regarding like uh, existing scripts, uh, yeah, what I don't like currently at Lightning, uh, that's you in most of the wallets you have like a separate balance this is your on-chain balance this is your off-chain balance and yeah you can only do uh lightning up to this limit you have to manage all these channels and stuff uh so mm, would be nice to actually uh use yeah the space efficiency so when i'm spending the money to you uh why do i need to have a change that is just returning me the money maybe i want to do it uh, to do something else with that either i can put the whole transaction in the coin join uh, transaction, or I can even use this output to open the lightning channel. And then uh, what I can have, I can have all my money in lightning channels. And whenever I need to send the money to you on chain, because you, I don't know, use Coinbase and you don't support lightning, um, I can just talk to my nodes, to my peers that I'm connected to and say, okay guys, I need to send some money there and I will pay the fees. So let's just uh, close the channel and reopen it with the slightly small balance mm, so yeah i'm sending you the money and i still maintain the channels and maybe i also rebalance it or make it a little bit more uh, efficient uh, so that would be really cool uh, but i think that um, we still need some time to develop all these tools so right now even the lightning specification is uh, you know continue developing and we are fixing a few things like uh, how to make all these channels more efficient how to pay without invoices or something else uh, so uh, but the future will be really, really, really nice. Exactly. So look, let's talk a little bit about your vision with Crypto Advance. Tell us a little bit about what some typical uses will be and like what you think it might look like. And maybe give us a view for the individual and a view for enterprise customers. Uh, you mean the vision of the of the product or of the future of the company or for what? what I mean, like for the product as used by those people. So for an example, okay. if you're a home user and you might have the node at home, mm -hmm. but it's also coin joining for you or lightning at home, but you can control it with a remote control, that sort of uh, thing. Okay, so like uh, the different use cases for different people. Yeah. Um, well, for uh, hodlers, uh, this is the easiest one. Uh, 
for like people like myself, uh, I would use uh, one hardware wallet uh, in a completely air gap mode. Uh, that is probably uh, also using the multi-signature with some other vendors where I store uh, most of my life savings. Uh, then I take some, I don't know, 10% of that and put it into this Worm hardware wallet that is connected to my node that uh, is hosted somewhere in the cloud. Uh, and I earn a little bit of fees on the Lightning Network uh, routing. Uh, or maybe if there are businesses, then yeah, it uh, stores the private key uh, and allows you to accept Lightning payments as well. Uh, because I think that mm, everything will be done in over Lightning afterwards in the nearest future. But right now also like the uh, normal on-chain transactions with like large transactions also make sense to put on-chain. Uh, yeah, so the cold storage plus the warm storage, uh, this is like for me. Uh, then for more like normal people and that are just entering the field, uh, what I would uh, probably like to have, and that is what we are also working on, uh, that, mm, okay, at least uh, the custodian wallets that provide all the service and uh, that maintain the infrastructure for the channels and everything, uh, they have to run a secure hardware. So basically, uh, they can have the uh, HSM or hardware wallet on their servers, and uh, the user can just register on his normal app uh, and uh, yeah, store some Bitcoins in there because this really helps uh, to onboard people. They don't want to uh, buy a bunch of hardware, uh, learn about the private keys, at least at first. So as soon as they get more and uh, well deeper in the field, they will start educate themselves and then probably they will buy their own hardware wallet and so on. Uh, so that is another thing. Uh, then enterprises. Enterprises are quite completely different. And uh, I feel really bad that many enterprises and companies are currently using like normal existing hardware wallets that are just lying somewhere in the safe. <laughs> and this means that there is a person who knows the pin code for this device that basically controls all the money. So our hope is actually to uh, develop a... Um, thing that can be integrated into their existing security model. For example, some companies use these smart cards to authenticate the users and they have different departments and user groups and these policies. Uh, so why don't we use the same structure uh, to authorize Bitcoin transactions? So basically you can have a hardware wallet uh, that stores the private keys, uh, but in order to spend, you don't enter the pin code, but instead uh, you provide authentication from different people. For example, uh, some accountant uh, confirms the transaction by pressing his YubiKey button, uh, and another, uh, some security guard, uh, also comes and enters some security pin in there. So then you kind of have uh, multiple... Uh, yeah, so internal controls for the inter company. Internal yeah. controls, and you define who can do what. Yeah, so that's the hope for the enterprise solution. Uh, yeah, they all have very different uh, security models. And that's why we are developing all this toolbox, because uh, the same works for developers. Developers want something custom, like tinkers, uh, makers, but also like uh, developers of the protocol as well. Mm, and they want a tool to play with new stuff. So uh, it perfectly works for both uh, enterprises and developers. Yeah.
Uh, hopefully, uh, if we are profitable in the in the future, we will also be able to make an uh, open source uh, secure element, like uh, really uh, open source, so like manufacture ourselves. Unfortunately, it takes a lot of money, but it's my my hope that we can take the mm, open source Risk Five core, for example. Uh, and what the problem with this Risk Five uh, at the moment is that even though the core is open source. All the companies that manufacture these chips, uh, they put a bunch of peripherals on top that is proprietary. So in total, you have a chip that is half open, half closed. Uh, so we would like to have a really like security-focused chip, uh, completely open source, uh, ideally verifiable, well, even if re it requires lab equipment. But uh, it's like further in the future. I think that uh, with Bitcoin uh, and uh, with all this uh, community, we can actually change the status of the industry, status of the security industry that is screwed and uh, kind of obfuscated by design. So, yeah, we can make a difference. That would be awesome. Fantastic. So, look, uh, who are you looking to hear from and what's the next steps? How can they get involved with the developer boards and so on? So we are uh, hopefully releasing the developer boards toolbox and the secure elements uh, in autumn, uh, October maybe, something like this. Uh, so it will be pretty minimal and it will be also pretty expensive because, you know, low volumes cost money. Uh, but uh, we would really like to have developers and community to start playing with this stuff and provide us with the feedback so that we can uh, make it better and more convenient. Um, then, uh, what else? Uh, if you have, if someone has interesting ideas, uh, yeah, everyone should write me, just write me. I am so happy to discuss all this stuff over Twitter, Telegram, whatever. Regarding investors that are maybe interested in uh, in our company also uh, makes sense to to talk a bit but uh, like if you really uh, see the um, our goal and share our ideas because well not like random yep. uh, invest and then quit uh, but uh, more like <laughs> uh, from the community people yeah right uh, what else well, on this part uh, i would have better Morris here, but too bad he's not <laughs> here. <at laughs> that's the fine. Um, yeah. We can put the details in mm -hmm. the show notes. So yeah. that's that's fine. Listeners can uh, find you and Moritz from there. Anything else you wanted to add, or that's pretty much it? I think I think that's pretty much uh, the key points. I think that's so uh, that's more or less it. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, look. Um, thanks very much. I think that was really educational. I hope I think the listeners will get a lot out of that. So uh, yeah, thanks. thanks very much for joining me. Uh, thanks very much for having me. I was really happy to chat about all this stuff. Yeah. I hope you guys enjoyed that chat with Stepan of Crypto Advance. Make sure you go chat with him and check out what Crypto Advance are doing. Also, just a quick shout out for one of my longtime listeners, Andrew DiMarcangelo. He's running Bloom Audio Store, which has really high quality audio gear. Andrew sent me a pro level pair of headphones, the Audio Technica ATH M70X, and they are truly a joy to use when I'm doing the editing for this podcast or just listening to music with a very balanced audio response the sound quality is just on another level so make sure you check out his store at bloomaudio.com and obviously he takes bitcoin for payment too if you want to support my podcast make sure you rate and review the podcast on itunes five star reviews are very much appreciated you can see the show notes on stefanlevera.com and subscribe there as well share the podcast out with your friends if you want to advertise contact me stefanlevera at pm.me otherwise that's it from me thanks guys see you next time